Welcome to the Cytokine Signaling Forum series of highlights from ACR 2021, where authors take us through their posters and presentations on cytokine signaling and JAK inhibitors. My name is Len Calabres, and I'm the head of the Cleveland Clinic section of clinical immunology. In this edition of our ACR highlights, we focus on the selection of presentations that deal with clinical outcomes from rheumatoid arthritis trials, including the important topic of switching between therapies. Hello, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm a professor of medicine at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. This is poster 814 from the ACR 2021. And uh, thank you for stopping by. So my poster was about patient characteristics, including efficacy and treatment patterns of tofacitinib as monotherapy in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And what we wanted to do was compare the data from randomized controlled trials to what's been published or presented in real world data. So we could kind of contextualize, compare and contrast and maybe have a take home message for people. Um, so I was the first author. And as you can see, there were several authors um, uh, particularly from Europe on this poster. And this was um, funded uh, the work by uh, Pfizer to look at tofacitinib and they did have the real world data. So what did we do first? Well, we wanted to really look at monotherapy studies of randomized control trials with tofacitinib and then compare by a literature search of real world data. Um, and the methods were to do a systematic review of um, basically any uh, real world data of tofacitinib. And we were already aware of the trials of monotherapy within the clinical trial program. When we did make comparisons, I think number one, we found that there were data gaps. So the first thing comparing was, uh, well, what would the efficacy be like? And in general, on what's been published to date, the lines of therapy are far different. So in the monotherapy um, clinical trial program of tofacitinib, in general, they were methotrexate or CSDMART IRs. When you look at real world data, uh, the vast majority of the patients were actually uh, TNF or BioDMART IR in the real world. So if we're gonna compare monotherapy and an earlier line of therapy, we might find differences. By that, I mean you could find differences potentially in effectiveness versus efficacy, depending on real world versus the clinical um, uh, trials. You can find differences in retention as, all, as well. So when we looked uh, down at uh, figure one, you can see here looking at different groups of patients, um, the cohorts were really divided into um, the line of therapy as well as looking at the randomized controlled trials. And you can see here that um, real world data uh, probably performs the same if you're in the same line of therapy as what we would find in randomized controlled trials. We also though had uh, different groups of patients. So as a, for instance, one of the um, randomized controlled trials was looking at a special population. So this, these were patients as a, for instance, from Japan. And so the performance might be different because um, the dose metabolism um, might be different. But I think what's most important about this poster is that um, when a drug comes to market, in general, there will be data gaps and real world data can uh, help us. 
Also, in general, when a drug comes to market, it will depend on access and it will also depend on prescription patterns as a, for instance, when we first get access to a medication, we might use it in later line of therapies, such as after a TNF or other biodemarts. And then over time, although our poster didn't look at this, others have shown certainly that over time, uh, patients with less high disease activity and earlier lines of therapy often will then have the usage. So I think we can conclude that um, patients with tofacitinib monotherapy in the real world are different than uh, patients in randomized controlled trials because monotherapy use in the real world is now about 50% of uh, tofacitinib Whereas in the whole clinical trial outcomes in tofacitinib, it wasn't that high. And it is increasing, it looks like, over time in some of the databases. We can also conclude that it's difficult to understand durability or retention in the real world because of the fact that... Um, we really don't know the confounding. Sometimes they're only looking at the first year of treatment, whereas to know, really know durability, you have to follow for many years. And I think we can also conclude that there are also similarities. So in general, the patient population of RA with very prevalent disease, failing CSD MARDs um, that we can expect about the same results in the real world. So when I go back to my practice and think about this, I think that really on any of the JAK inhibitors, as they um, come to market in different, uh, um, I guess, mature markets throughout the, the world, and as newer ones come, that we're going to see practice patterns shifting. We're going to see practice patterns shifting as well because of some of the safety data and recommendations that we've received from our own health authorities. So I think that this gives you an idea that when we look at real world data, it depends on the year you look, there will be differences because um, we, we introduce in earlier lines of therapy or less severe patients over time. So I hope you enjoy the ACR and thanks for attending. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for your interest in our poster. And on behalf of my co-authors, I would like to present the results to you. The question that we are looking at is whether um, there is consistency or not with regard to the response on uh, introducing upadacitinib in patients with variant background therapies. And we are looking at four of the phase three clinical um, trials and select choice, um, including patients who had previously failed to biologic DMARDs, um, select next and select monotherapy up, um, included patients who failed to conventional DMARD therapy and select monotherapy patients who failed to methotrexate. Um, so and not surprisingly, um, disease duration would be shorter uh, in, in the groups of patients who did not have previous um, biologics. That's a little bit of the background. Um, looking at this patient population, the question is, which responses are we going to look at? And figure one shows to you the time to first achievement of DAS 28 CRP um, equal or lower than 3.2, meaning DAS 28 CRP low disease activity. And we are comparing um, patients on upadacitinib. So no comparisons to adalimumab or to abatacept. But the point is that you can see that regardless of which patient population you look at, um, the time um, until 50% of the patients have achieved the respective response. In this case, the low disease activity is pretty much similar. 
um, if you look at figure two, um, th this time we are looking at the time to first achievement of CDI low disease activity across studies. Why is this important? Ubatacitinib is a JAK1 inhibitor that may interfere with IL-6 signaling. So um, theoretically, there would be an independent impact on CRP. So you probably would, if you do the calculation, think, well, the drug is, is working better than a clinical C. So using the CDI tells you that this is without the CIP. And um, you see um, in figure two, it is pretty much still the same. There seems to be a tendency for patients uh, in select beyond. Those are the patients who failed to previous biological DMARDs. Um, maybe also a little bit with regard to select monotherapy, but I think overall um, there is no disadvantage for the patients who have a longer um, disease duration, you have a longer history of previous drugs, and that's mainly the key message um, that we try to communicate in this poster. Thank you very much. So welcome everyone. My name is Thorsten Witte. I'm a rheumatologist from Germany and it's my pleasure now to present you our data on the persistence on JAK inhibitors in daily practice in Germany. Now, as you all know, we can treat RA patients after the failure of conventional DMARDs with either a biological DMARD or a JAK inhibitor. Now, in our analysis, we wanted to compare the persistence of RA patients on TNF inhibitors on non-TNF biologicals and on JAK inhibitors. And we use data of the German RADA registry, which is obtained uh, by uh, 22 rheumatologists in private practice, mostly in southern Germany and Bavaria. 5,166 RA patients have been documented in this registry after 2017. Prescription information was available of 4,726 of these patients at database closure. Now, out of these patients, 77% were female, their mean age was uh, 66 years, and 60% uh, were seropositive. Out of these 4,726 patients, 15.2% were treated with a new TNF inhibitor after 2017, 8.9% with a non-TNF biological DMARD, and 9.9% with a JAK inhibitor, and the persistence on these various drug principles was compared thereafter. Now, as you can see in table one on the poster, the patients on TNF inhibitors tended to be a bit younger, and they tended to have a shorter disease duration than the other groups. And most of them had actually been bio-naive before they were treated with the TNF inhibitors. The patients on JAK inhibitors were very frequently treated in monotherapy, almost two-thirds of them actually. Now in figure one, you can see already see the main results of uh, our observations. And the main result was that the persistence on JAK inhibitors, TNF inhibitors, and on other biological DMARDs was remarkably high. In fact, higher than 85% after 24 months, which is higher than in most other uh, observations from the real world so far. This uh, persistence did not differ significantly between JAK inhibitors and TNF inhibitors, but was somewhat higher on non-TNF biological DMARs. 
Now, in conclusion, to me, at least the biggest surprise in our study was the high persistence on any of these drug principles, uh, whereas there was no major difference between persistence on JAK inhibitors or TNF inhibitors. And with this, I would like to thank you for your attention, and I, I wish you a very good day. Goodbye. Hello, my name is Mikkel Østergaard. I'm a rheumatologist from Rigshospitalet and University of Copenhagen in uh, Denmark. And it's my pleasure on behalf of my co-authors to present this study titled Effect of Tofacitinib on Spinal Versural Body and Postolateral Element Information and Structural Lesions Using the Canada-Denmark MRI Scoring System in Patients with Ankylosing Spondylitis. Results from a Phase 2 study. The aim of this study is to investigate the effect of JAK inhibition by tofacitinib on MRI-determined spinal inflammation, both in vertebral bodies and in the postolateral parts of the spine, using the Canada-Denmark or the CANDAN scoring systems uh, in patient with, uh, patients with treatment-naive ankylosing spondylitis. We hope that you will find the results interesting. This report describes MRI findings of 137 ankylosing spondylitis patients, all being biologically naive, who had entered a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study, receiving either tofacitinib 10 mg twice daily, tofacitinib 5 mg twice daily, or placebo. And spine MRI assessments were performed at baseline and week 12. MRI, uh, MRIs of the spine were read by two independent readers, um, who are expert readers and have been part of developing the scoring system, blinded to time point and treatment. Discrepancies between the readers were adjudicated by a third reader, an experienced musculoskeletal radiologist. While other frequently used scoring systems focus on vertebral, inf vertebral body inflammation, the scoring system applied in this study uh, was, as mentioned, the Canada-Denmark scoring system, and this allows for a detailed anatomy-based evaluation of inflammatory and structural lesions in spinal vertebral bodies, um, as the others also do, but also in the postural elements of the spine, including, for instance, costovertebral joints, facet joints, and the transverse and, uh, and spinous processes, and soft tissues. And uh, this is important because these structures are frequently involved in enclosing spondylitis. If you look in the poster, table one, you'll find the baseline Canada-Denmark scores, which were overall well-balanced, except for a, a slight a variation in the, um, the fat scores. But the inflammatory scores were very well-balanced between the groups. Figures one and two, they illustrate the main results, um, and they show significantly greater reductions in total spinal inflammation score. That's in figure 1a. And if you look at that, uh, you see figure 1a with the four columns. And uh, in all the, um, to, in the two tofacitinib groups, both 5 milligrams and 10 milligrams, and the pool tofacitinib group, which is the red one, you'll see a reductions in the score of uh, something like uh, six uh, score points, and you can see the, um, the different uh, groups there. While in the placebo group, there was uh, no change, almost a, actually an increase in the score of 0.28, which is, you could say, more or less nothing. In contrast, the fat changes, as you see on the uh, 1B, there were a slightly higher increase in the active groups, but that was uh, not uh, any way near to being statistically significant, so there were no difference there. In figure two, you see uh, the inflammation subscores. 
Um, and that is one of the uh, interesting aspects of this study. You'll both see in A, the virtual body inflammation, in B, uh, the overall posterior element inflammatory subscores, and also facet joints, uh, corner inflammation subscores, non-corner inflammation subscores, and posterolateral inflammation subscores. And these are uh, looking into the different uh, posterior elements uh, which are not captured by the other scoring methods. And what you will see is that in um, these, there are also significant changes in uh, favor of uh, the tufetidinib groups compared to uh, the placebo group. So with this, this study is the first one to show that JAK inhibition with tuvacitinib not only reduces vertebral body inflammation, but also inflammation in the clinically important synovial facet uh, joints and costovertebral joints, and in the instances attaching to the transverse and spinous processes. By revealing such marked differences within just 12 weeks of therapy, the study also illustrates the high sensitivity to change and discriminatory ability of the CANDEN scoring system. We also looked into the reproducibility, which is not shown in the uh, poster, but was very high between the two readers. So in conclusion, uh, tofacitinib treatment in biological naive patients with ankylosing spondylitis was associated with significant reductions in MRI spinal inflammation as assessed by the Canada-Denmark MRI scoring system. Particularly, tuvacitinib reduced inflammation in the postolateral elements of the spine, such as facet joints, which has not been described previously. Tuvacitinib was also associated with a numerically higher but non-significant and non-dose-dependent increase in total spine fat score. Thank you for your attention. I would like to thank you for this opportunity to present the study. I am Dr. Pombo Suarez rheumatologist working at Santiago de Compostela University Hospital, an assessor of BioVadaser, the Spanish Society of Rheumatology Registry of Biologic Therapies. The study we are going to talk about is focused on patients who have failed therapy with a first JAK inhibitor. We tried to determine which would be the best treatment option in this scenario, either to use a different JAK inhibitor or to switch to a biologic demand. The 2019 update of the EULA recommendations for the management of rheumatoid arthritis state that patients that have failed therapy with biologic or JAK inhibitor should be treated with another biologic or JAK inhibitor. At the time of the elaboration of these recommendations, no data were available of studies using a second JAK inhibitor after failure to a JAK inhibitor, and much less comparing both alternatives after JAK inhibitor failure either to use another JAK inhibitor or to switch to a biologic demand. So that is what we address in this study. We try to set a light in this growing population of patients as prescription of these drugs is increasing and new JAK inhibitors come into play, meaning that the scenario we pose is becoming more and more frequent in real life. The primary objective of the study was to compare the effectiveness of using a second JAK inhibitor versus a biologic demand in real life patients who have failed therapy to a first JAK inhibitor. To assess effectiveness, we measure drug retention and disease activity with the DAS28 index. Secondary objective of the study was to evaluate differences in response to a second JAK inhibitor or to a biologic DMAD 
depending on the reason for stopping the first jack inhibitor. To achieve these objectives, to have enough sample size, we use the jackpot study. Jackpot study is a collaboration of national registries from all over the world, registries that recruit rheumatoid arthritis patients being treated in real life with jack inhibitors and biologics. It is directed by Professor Finch Group located in Geneva, Switzerland, and 14 countries participated in this particular project. We pull data from these registries coming from rheumatoid arthritis patients that failed to jack inhibitor therapy and were subsequently being treated with a jack inhibitor or a biologic. To determine effectiveness, drug survival was illustrated by Kaplan-Meier and differences in retention were assessed with Cox regression analysis. We also determined the DAS-28 evolution over time with a linear mixed model, imputing data for missing values. With this approach, we were able to collect more than 700 patients that failed treatment with JAK inhibitor, of which 154 were cyclers and 554 were switchers. We detected differences in baseline characteristics between both groups of patients. JAK inhibitor cyclers were older, had longer disease duration, received a higher number of previous biologics, and had longer exposure to first JAK inhibitor treatment when compared with switchers to biologics, meaning that JAK inhibitor cyclers had a more difficult to treat profile. Monotherapy was more prevalent among cyclers, and we also detected differences on both groups depending on the reason of stopping the first JAK inhibitor. If JAK inhibitor was stopped due to security, patients were more likely to cycle JAK inhibitors, whereas if discontinuation was because of lack of efficacy, a trend towards switching to biologic was detected. To assess effectiveness, drug retention was determined after two years of follow-up, and no difference was detected between both groups using Cox regression analysis adjusting for confounders. We also determine survival depending on the reason for stopping the first JAK inhibitor. If it was stopped due to lack of efficacy, no difference in retention was detected between strategies. In this scenario, we also analyzed the reason for stopping the second line of treatment. And we found that in both cases, most of the patients would stop also for lack of efficacy. If the reason for stopping the first JAK inhibitor was security, we did not detect significant difference in survival between groups either, although it seemed to be a trend during the first year of follow-up where discontinuation was more likely in patients cycling JAK inhibitors. Precisely, in this group of patients, the reason for stopping the second JAK inhibitor was also due to an adverse event in most cases, whereas in switchers, more variability was detected. DAS-28 over time evolved in a similar way in both groups with improvement in both cases after more than six months of follow-up. Of course, we must consider the limitations of the study. Heterogeneity between data coming from different registries could not be assessed due to the small sample size contributed by each country. Most of the patients received tofacitinib as first JAK inhibitor as well. It will be interesting to see what happens in both directions, going from tofacitinib to varicitinib and vice versa, as well as to include the newer JAK inhibitors in future studies. Another limitation of the study was the short follow-up. 
JAK inhibitors were recently approved. So the follow-up of the second line of treatment was not long enough in some cases, having to deal with the problem of missing data. To conclude, after failing a first JAK inhibitor, cycling JAK inhibitors versus switching to a biologic appear to have similar effectiveness, despite a more difficult to treat patient profile for the patient cycling JAK inhibitors. Finally, when the first JAK inhibitor was stopped due to an adverse event, it was more likely that the second JAK inhibitor will also be a stop for an adverse event. Finally, I would like to thank each of the registries that participated in this project and their representatives. Delphine Corbusier for her great effort processing the data, Professor Finch for leading the Jackpot study, and a special mention to Professor Gomez Reino. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Ronald van Bollenhoven, a rheumatologist and head of the Department of Rheumatology and Clinical Immunology at the Amsterdam UMC in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. And today I would like to share with you some results that I had the pleasure of presenting at the uh, 2021 ACR Convergence Congress that took place digitally and uh, where a lot of exciting new data from the field of rheumatology were of course discussed. And um, on behalf of a group of investigators, uh, uh, I was in the position of presenting data on upadacitinib. And upadacitinib is, of course, a check inhibitor that is approved for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. And the analysis uh, that I had presented here was one that was based on a clinical trial called the SELECT Early Trial. And the question was, how about the long-term results? So first, a little bit about this particular trial. Uh, as you know, upadacitinib was approved based on a whole number of very large clinical trials, and one of those was called Select Early, and that one was a little bit unusual because it was done in patients who hadn't really been treated yet. I mean, they could have had methotrexate for a short time or maybe another conventional DMARD, but many patients were really at the beginning of their treatment trajectory for rheumatoid arthritis. And they were randomized to receive methotrexate, which is, of course, the standard treatment for newly diagnosed rheumatoid arthritis, or upadacitinib. And in this trial, there were two different dosages, 15 or 30 milligram daily. Now, as you know, 15 milligram is the approved dosage, so I'll focus mostly on that dosage. But it was interesting that this was a head-to-head -head between methotrexate and upadacitinib monotherapy, um, so it was interesting to see what would happen, and we were able to publish the results of that first analysis. We were able to show that the patients generally were able to stay in the trial and follow the protocol correctly, and that after a year of treatment, or even after a half year of treatment, there were already big differences uh, in the outcomes. And I think um, there were outcomes after 12 weeks, which were mandated by the FDA, showing clearly favorable results for upadacitinib over methotrexate. And the results that I find the most appealing after 24 weeks of treatment, the proportion of patients who achieved a remission according to the DOS, perhaps not the best definition of remission, but still very good for the patient, that was achieved by only one in five patients on methotrexate and almost half the patients on upadacitinib. So a very big difference in favor of upadacitinib and also clinically, I think, meaningful and suggesting that here we see a head-to-head -head comparison with a clearly better efficacy for one of the two drugs. And as I mentioned, 15 and 30 milligram of upadacitinib were both 
tested, there was no real efficacy difference between those two dosages. So this has all been published in arthritis and rheumatology in 2000. So now for the ACR Congress, we looked into the longer term results with these treatments. And uh, so we had data now for 156 weeks, which if you calculate quickly is three years. And um, we were able to show that after that long period of time, the difference was still very clear in favor of upenicitinib over methotrexate. So for example, looking at the ACR70 response, which is of course an excellent response, which is what we want. It is still about half the patient on upenicitinib who, who achieved it and who had achieved it and maintained it um, for those, those three years. With methotrexate, it was a lower percentage, in this case, 29.3%. We also looked at various other outcomes and we were mostly interested not so much in response as in the disease state. Um, as the words of um, Professor Dugado from uh, Paris many years ago, he said that it's, it's good to be better, but it's better to be good. And good in rheumatoid arthritis is if you have low disease activity or a re remission, and there are various definitions for this. And so we looked at all these definitions and uh, some are tougher, harder to meet, others are a little bit more lenient. If you, for example, look at low disease activity, according to the DOS 28, then you achieve it by more than 50% with upenicitinib versus a bit over 30% with methotrexate. If you look at the Boolean remission, which is the toughest remission criterion we have, then it's achieved by only 16% of methotrexate and by uh, around 30% of those patients who were given upenicitinib for those three years. And then with the other outcomes, you can see intermediate results. But for all outcomes, for all these state outcomes, saying the patient is doing well, for all of these, the pattern is the same. Methotrexate is good for some patients. Upenicitinib is better for more patients. And the two dosages of upenicitinib are equal. Now you can look at the time course because for the patient, of course, it's all very nice that they are doing well after three years, but how long does it take to get there? And of course, for upenicitinib, we already know this also from clinical practice, it works pretty fast. So here also the onset of the efficacy is rapid and clearly much faster for upenicitinib than for methotrexate, which is an additional um, bonus. Now, none of the efficacy data can be taken separately from the safety data because we always have to have this balance in the clinical treatment decisions. And this clinical trial allowed us to do a very comprehensive safety analysis and we looked at various different uh, side effects or adverse events, as they're called. And of course, uh, as if, if you know clinical trials, you know that an adverse event is anything that happens. So it doesn't have to be related to the drug. It could just be a coincidence, but it's just tallied and you look for a difference between the two groups. And what we saw was that for many of the categories of adverse events, there were no differences. The ones that did show a difference that are important to highlight here is that herpes zoster did occur more frequently with upenicitinib than with methotrexate. We also saw that neutropenia, low white blood cell counts, also occurred a little bit more frequently with upenicitinib than with methotrexate. And we saw the CPK elevation. Now that is a bit strange because there is no clinical correlate. We have seen this with all the JAK inhibitors in rheumatoid arthritis. CPK elevations have been reported. They're seen in some patients. They're usually not very high and the patients do not have myositis and there's no other obvious clinical consequence. So 
this has remained a little bit of a puzzle. We think it's some sort of direct effect and we do not believe at this time that this is something that we have to worry about, but it is something that we have observed. So these were the three ad, um, adverse events that were reported more frequently with upadacitinib than with methotrexate. But it's important to note that there were also quite a lot that were not more frequent with upadacitinib than with methotrexate. For example, general infections or serious infections. Um, and also uh, what many people have been worried about in uh, rheumatoid arthritis with you know, comorbidities, cardiovascular events. All of these seem to have been at the same level for methotrexate and upadacitinib, and this is also true for adjudicated venous thromboembolic events. So, so far, so good, very encouraging results, and the safety remains, um, remains very acceptable, and certainly also no new findings in this trial. So I want to conclude this particular analysis by saying that upadacitinib as monotherapy showed sustained and clinically very meaningful responses, including remission, compared with methotrexate, and this through 156 weeks, through three years of treatment. On the balance, we saw an increased rate of some adverse events, including zoster, neutropenia, and CPK elevations, but there were no new risks. And so on the whole, the balance efficacy to safety remains very good for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis with upadacitinib. Thank you very much. I'm Dr. Grace Wright, a consultant rheumatologist in New York City, and I'm presenting on behalf of myself and my co-authors. The title of this poster is Impact of Race on the Efficacy and Safety of Tofacitinib in Patients with RA, a post hoc analysis of phase two, three, and three before clinical trials. So racial disparities in disease severity, physical function, pain and treatment persistence and tolerance have been reported in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. However, there remains a paucity of data on differences between racial groups in response to advanced RA therapies, particularly Janus kinase or JAK inhibitors. Here we evaluated the impact of race on the efficacy and safety of tofacitinib in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. This post hoc analysis pooled data from eight phase two, six phase three, and one phase 3B4 randomized control trial. Patients received tofacitinib 5 or 10 milligrams twice daily, adalimumab 40 milligrams Q2 weekly, or placebo. Across all treatment arms, patients most commonly enrolled from Europe, North America, East and South Asia, as well as Latin America. Efficacy and safety outcomes were stratified by self-reported patient race and categorized as white, black, Asian, and other. Most of the other patients self-reported as Hispanic and or Latino, followed by mixed race and then unspecified. The analyses were as follows. Efficacy outcomes were analyzed at month three, and this included ACR20, ACR50, ACR70 response rates, CDI, DAS28ESR low disease activity, and uh, remission rates respectively, and then least square mean change on the DAS28ESR, as well as change in HACDI. For binary outcomes, odd ratios and the 95% confidence interval for active treatment versus placebo were calculated using logistic regression models. For continuous outcomes, placebo-adjusted least square mean change, 
the 95% confidence intervals were calculated using MMRM. Incidence rates, that is patients with events per 100 patient year, censored at day of first event or up to last dose plus 28 days, were evaluated for adverse events, serious adverse events, discontinuations due to adverse events, and all-cause mortality. Of the 6,355 patients included, patient self-reported race was 4,145 white, 213 black, 1,348 Asian, and 649 other. Baseline characteristics were generally similar across treatment and racial groups, accepting higher rates of prior biodemart exposure in white and black compared to Asian and other patients. Across treatment arms, white, black, Asian, and other patients most commonly enrolled from Europe, that's 40.9% with an N of 1,696, North America of 68.1% with an N of 145, and East and South Asia, 97.9% with an N of 1,320, and Latin America, 80.6% with an N of 523, respectively. Most of the patients, as I said, self-reported as Hispanic and or Latina, followed by mixed race. At month three, ACR 205070 and C-dilo disease activity rates were mostly higher in other versus white patients treated with tofacitinib. DAS 28 ESR low disease activity rates and least square mean change in the DAS 28 ESR and change in HACDI were generally comparable across racial groups with active treatment. Across efficacy outcomes, placebo responses observed in black patients were generally numerically higher than those observed in white, Asian, and other patients. Our safety outcomes, which included the adverse events, serious adverse events, discontinuations due to adverse events, and all-cause mortality were broadly similar across treatment arms with higher adverse event incidence rates seen with black and other versus white and Asian patients treated with tofacitinib. So in conclusion, across racial groups, tofacitinib efficacy and safety were consistent with previous findings from the tofacitinib RA clinical program. Higher ACR 20, 50, 70, and CDI low disease activity rates in other versus white patients with tofacitinib may be attributable to prior treatment history and regional practice norms. Numerically higher placebo responses in black versus white, Asian, and other patients with tofacitinib may reflect demographic differences, notably the country of enrollment across the racial groups in RCTs. Safety findings were generally consistent across racial and treatment groups, with some racial differences seen in adverse event incident rates seen with tofacitinib. So future analyses should focus on the impact of socioeconomic, cultural, genetic, or practice-based differences that may underpin these results. Hello. I'm Ronald van Vollenhoven, rheumatologist and head of the Department of Rheumatology at the Amsterdam UMC in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. And having been at the ACR Convergence Congress of 2021, it was my pleasure to be able to discuss some new data on upadacitinib 
Upadacitinib, of course, is a check inhibitor approved for the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis. And um, one of the interesting pieces of data, of course, on this drug is also how long the response can be sustained. And we had the opportunity to analyze that based on one of the pivotal phase three trials that had previously been done and reported about upadacitinib. I did this work on behalf of a group of investigators uh, internationally, and of course, with support from the sponsor of upadacitinib, AbbVie. Now, the objective was to see if patients who had responded very well initially would also maintain that response, which is, of course, what the patient wants. And so we took data from the Select Beyond clinical trial, and that's the one where patients could participate if they had rheumatoid arthritis, uh, which was active, and they had already been treated with a biological, usually an anti-TNF biological, and they had not had the sufficient response. So that's a pretty tough patient population to treat. And as was published already several years ago, in that patient population, upadacitinib was clearly superior to a placebo and achieved good results in very many patients. That was part of the reason it has been approved by the FDA, the EMA, and other regulatory authorities. So these patients were also followed more longitudinally. And then you can ask the question, if a patient does achieve that good response, do they then also maintain it? And that, of course, for the patient, very important. Uh, so we looked at four different good kinds of responses. The best response is undoubtedly the remission according to a tough remission criterion. And uh, the one we chose for this analysis was the CDI, the Clinical Disease Activity Index. And if you have a remission on the Clinical Disease Activity Index, it has to be less than 2.8 that's a very good result. Not many patients achieve it though, but it's a, it's a very, very low level remission um, with, with a high bar, low, uh, low percentage that achieve it, but it is very good. That was achieved by 34% of the patients in this trial. And we also looked at the remission that is sometimes uh, called a remission, but sometimes not according to the DAS28. And people have criticized it because it's a bit too lenient. That is achieved by more patients. In this case, 70%. So you can say it's not truly a remission, but that is also a good outcome uh, for sure. Then we also looked at the CDI, which I just mentioned for the remission. You can also say, well, how about the CDI less than 10? That's a low disease activity. Or you can say the DAS28 less than 3.2, also a low disease activity. So there are different ways of looking at what a good outcome is for the patient, but we're going to look at all four and then you can pick your choice. So these were achieved to, by the patients to a variable degree. And now the question is, if they achieve it once, do they maintain it? Now for this, we generated uh, Kaplan-Meier curves and the Kaplan-Meier curves actually show that some patients maintain it and others do not, which is what you expect. How many do achieve it and maintain it? Well, it depends a little bit on which of these outcomes you look at. The best case, it's about 60%. But the least good case, just a little under 40%. So you may say that, well, okay, well, it's good for the patients who maintain it, but I would have hoped that maybe more patients can maintain it. And so that's the typical glass full, glass half full, half empty kind of discussion. So we decided to look a little bit a little bit further and say, okay, so what exactly is going on? And now I have two little bits of good news. If you say that 
patients losing this response is bad news, then we do actually also have good news for those patients. Because in a separate analysis, we show that if you, for example, achieve the CDI remission, this, this is a very good outcome, right? And then you say, okay, but some of these patients lose that outcome again. It turns out that the vast majority of those who lose it, actually they go to low disease activity. They don't go to high disease activity. They don't go to moderate, they go to low. So even though they don't technically still have a remission, they're still doing pretty well. Or you can say the same thing if you have achieved low disease activity, most patients do actually maintain that. Some actually get better and go to remission and the ones who do not maintain low disease activity end up with moderate. So a slight worsening could be the explanation of that. It turns out that even if you lose that response you had initially, you don't lose it by much. There is a little up and down, of course, in all of these measures. So that's part of what mitigates the original result that some people lose the response. And the other thing um, is, and this, um, uh, this is also something you could wonder if the patient has had say a remission, and then a few months later, you check and oh, they lost the remission, but they could recapture it also. And we looked at that as well. And it turns out that of those patients who have achieved one of these good outcomes, then on the next assessment, they lost it. Then it turns out that half of those actually regain it. So clearly some patients end up very close to the cutoffs and they could go up and down a little bit. But overall, I think we can conclude that for patients who are, you know, a, a tough patient population because they have failed biologicals, they're now treated with a JAK inhibitor, upadacitinib. If they achieve a good response, which many patients did, then also many of those will maintain that very good response. And even if they do not, usually we are just looking at a slight, slightly less good situation, a slight worsening. But we're also seeing patients recapture that good response eventually. So I think in many ways. These data support the fact that upadacitinib can achieve a very good result for many patients, and there is a good duration and a good longitudinal follow-up saying that this is also for the long-term a useful, a good treatment for patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this edition of ACR Highlights. I hope you enjoyed them. Make sure to subscribe to CSF Podcasts on Apple, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on our Congress content or any of our other usual monthly content. You can also visit the CSF webpage at cytokinesignaling.com where you can access a whole range of resources from monthly slide summaries of latest papers to accredited CME courses and more uh, content as well. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.